And so if you would open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 20, we're going to look at the heart of this chapter today. We are in the heart of the book of Proverbs. And uh, as Devin shared with you a little while ago, uh, we haven't been able to find any sermon series online that go through these chapters. Uh, so uh, we're the only ones who are uh, I don't know, crazy enough to try. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Proverbs chapter 20. For some of us, we first heard the name Jesus as we drank our mother's milk. And believing in him is as obvious as believing that the sun shines. For others of us, faith came at the end of wrestling, like Jacob with the angel. We fought and fought, but could never win until we surrendered and believed. But believing isn't the finish line. In fact, it's the starting line. Once faith comes, you have to live your life. You must eat and sleep and dress and relate to a wide variety of people. You quickly learn that even though Jesus has changed you from the inside out, that's not true of everybody else. Sometimes you're treated worse because you believe in him. And as and you yourself, you come to realize, still fail to live up to your newfound faith. And the effect of this all is it makes the world a very complicated place. Faith, as Proverbs shows again and again, faith is a walk. It's a way. And it brings us into often puzzling situations. So what Proverbs does is it puts some ground under our feet as we arrive at difficult junctures on the path. Today we're going to see wisdom at work when it comes to doing business and using money, and then how wisdom works when the wicked have their way. This wisdom that we read about, if it is to come alive in our lives, it only comes by a gift, a gift from God. So let's pray for it. Lord, we pray as we spend the next 40 minutes pondering these words, that you would make them a part of us, that they would reshape the architecture of our souls so that they could be shaped around who you are and your will for us. And so now, open our eyes and our hearts to receive this and change us as we meditate on your word. We ask you through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our text today comes in two parts. They're very different in some ways, but they are related. I've titled the first part, Doing Business in a Fallen World. Let's read, starting in verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. 
Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. Now, when you first read through these, as I did uh, earlier this week, these verses seem to have little connection with each other. But there are hints about how they relate. So I want you to notice these, and maybe this will help you for reading the rest of Proverbs. The seen eye in verse 12 connects with open your eyes in verse 13. The buyer of verse 14 is after the costly stones of verse 15. Verse 16 deals with helping someone get a loan, which relates to the buyer of verse 14 and the earner of verse 17. Verse 17 has to do with getting what you need to live every day, food. And verse 18 counsels us to get counsel, but as verse 19 points out, not from a babbler. So how are we to think and live in the world of commerce? Now, many, many of us here today earn money by producing or selling a product or a service. And all of us are involved in buying things from a pack of candy with mom's spare change to a half a million dollar house. So we could summarize the text. I want to break it down into five statements where you can see the connections and at the same time, maybe they'll become clear to you and more memorable. The first statement is paying attention is a full-time job. Paying attention is a full-time job. Look at verse 12. The hearing ear, the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. So we see here the Lord has given you ears and eyes so you can understand what you see and hear. When we sleep, we are unaware of the sights and sounds around us. You must pay close attention to what is going on around you and not sleepwalk through your life. When you connect verse 13 to what follows, you realize this is less about staying in bed when you should be working, although that certainly is involved, but it's more about being wide awake to what is going on around you. Sleep is a metaphor of being unaware of your surroundings. Pay attention. 
And the next four verses show us what to pay attention to. So the second statement, beware the critical words of the buyer, seek wise words before you seek wealth. Look at verses 14 and 15. Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. There is gold in abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. For most of us, the most valuable thing we will ever purchase is a house. And once you own this house, and it comes time to sell the house, we set a price, and then a purchaser often comes to negotiate the price down. How do you know if they're being fair? Well, you've got to listen carefully. They see a stain on one bedroom carpet and declare, the carpets in this house are terrible. They detect a smell in a hallway that you never noticed before and say, I can tell just by smelling that this house is filled with mold. And by the time they've completed their tour, you are convinced that your house is about to collapse in a heap of toxic rubble. In effect, they manipulate you into thinking your house is worth less than it is. So you accept a lower price, later to learn of the buyer's boast on social media, media at what a steal of a deal he got on his new house. So wisdom calls us to pay attention and not be duped, not believe everything you initially hear, and it calls you not to be like the buyer. Verse 15 tells us that the quest for money or for a steal of a deal is the wrong goal. Look at 15 again. There is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Your deceptive dealings may get you gold and precious stones, but knowledge creates a thing of beauty. It takes the gold and the precious stones and shapes them into a precious jewel. So do your business based on the true value of a thing and build wealth and a community that is beautiful. How you do business based on knowledge, true knowledge can create a beautiful thing. And this applies to knowing the price of goods and it applies to knowing how to evaluate people. Statement number three, don't entrust your wealth to people you do not know enough to trust. Here we have Let's read it, verse 16. Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Here we have a three-way business deal. We have a lender, a borrower, and a person who says he'll pay off the loan if the borrower fails to pay. In this situation, the lender does not trust the borrower enough to give him the loan unless someone he knows has the money will guarantee it. 
when my youngest daughter purchased her first car, she wanted to establish credit for she had never borrowed anything, so she wanted to pay for some of the car with a loan. So we went to a dealership that advertised loans for as low as one and a half percent. But because she had no credit, she was offered instead a 12% loan. So she secured the loan on my credit. If she didn't pay, I would be responsible. And she got a very low rate because I knew her and I trusted her. But what if I did this for someone I did not know? Someone who looked so sincere and promised me she had a good job and could make the payments. If I was not paying attention with my eyes and ears, I'd help her out and likely end up paying for her car. So the proverb is a bit of a joke because often you, uh, a person will put up his garment, his coat that he lives in and sleeps in to secure a loan. And they're saying when he secures the loan, take his coat away from him, take all his outer garments so in effect he'll get out of the loan. Statement number four, that sweet deal may break your teeth. Verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. In our age, it's an open secret that advertising is about making promises about a product that are inflated and even flatly false while hiding all the downsides. That sounds a lot to me like bread gained by deceit. <laughs> when these kinds of falsehood become an open secret in our society, they become an accepted way of doing business. And when everyone acts this way, we end up with a society built on mistrust. And it works both ways. You lie to get what you want and people lie to you about what they offer you for your money. And so what you thought you obtained through misrepresenting what you were selling ends up becoming like a mouthful of sharp stones. Statement number five, seek counsel but only from people you can trust. Verse 18, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance wage war. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. Now, there is no venture more risky than going to war. An unwise king puts at risk both his kingdom and his life. So he must pay careful attention. Do you see how this theme of pay attention is coming through here? He must pay careful attention to the strength of his enemy and his own abilities. In a thing as complex as warfare, 
It requires wise counsel. And this applies to any venture that has a big downside from buying a house to choosing a school for your child. Verse 19 warns us to avoid revealing our thoughts and plans and getting counsel from a babbler, someone who speaks without thinking, someone who shares what he has been privately entrusted to him. He may use what he said to slander you, even if he did not intend slander. So get counsel, but only from people that you know you can trust. Verses 12 through 19 all require that we pay attention. We use the ears and the eyes God has given us to make evaluations of plans and people based on truth and wisdom. And this especially uh, applies to the commercial world. Now we come to the next section of our passage, and it answers the question, whom do I trust when I have been wronged? Or we could put it under the heading, vengeance and trust. Let's read starting in verse 20. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? It is a snare to say rashly, it's holy, and reflect only after making vows. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. Now verses 20 and 21 do not register in this society. Child curses his parents and we tend to think so the kid hates his parents maybe they deserve it but this was not the case in the ancient world ancient peoples placed huge value on how children treated their parents look at verse 20 if one curses his father or his mother his lamp will be put out in utter darkness he will die in darkness. So how serious is this sin to God? Listen to the law of Moses in the book of Leviticus. This is the Lord speaking. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Whoa. The serious nature of a child's relationship to his parents is also reflected in verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in 
the end. So the child comes and he wants an early inheritance. He places his value for money above how he values his parents. He puts at risk what they might live on when they are aged. And if he does this, he will not be blessed in the end, in the end of his life. In fact, as verse 20 says directly, and what is implied in not be blessed is he will be cursed. Now, what's a curse? Well, a curse is a pronouncement of harm or evil to come upon the object of the curse. The ancients believed, and we have devalued, we have seriously devalued words in our society. But the ancients believed that words spoken in this way had the power to bring what they said to pass. So in the context of this passage, mistreating parents is about as offensive as one can get. Pronouncing harm on your parents is about as bad as it can get. It's an abomination to the Lord. And so a new theme emerges. What do you do? What do you do if you're the parent? What do you do when you're the object of another person's sin? So the passage is introduced with what would be considered one of the worst things you could do, curse your parents. Well, there's other things that people do that bring harm to us. And so the answer begins in verse 22, which is really the heart of the passage today. Do not say... I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Vengeance belongs to God alone. So don't seek to punish the other person for what he has done. Let the Lord punish him, and let the Lord decide how to compensate you in return. We're not to take matters into our own hands when we have been harmed by another person. This does not mean we never seek to redress wrongs done to us, but we don't leave the decision in our hands. As verse 26 implies, the king has a responsibility to right wrongs done in his kingdom. It's the king's responsibility, but we are not to take over the process for ourselves. So not seeking vengeance may include seeking a judicial remedy for harm someone has caused you, though in your heart you trust the Lord to bring about justice, not yourself. We're not to trust ourselves. We're to trust the Lord. Verse 23 looks back to the previous section as it does to the previous verse. Another injustice here. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. And false scales are not good. So when you go to the gas station and you pay $45 for 15 gallons of gas at $3 per gallon, you expect the pump to measure out 15 gallons. But what if the pump's owner changes the gallon counter 
So that when the counter says 15, you've only pumped 14. That's what's going on here. The Lord hates this kind of deception, both in business and in justice. You can tip the scales of commerce. You can tip the scales of justice. So the calling is to be honest in all your dealings. And if you've been cheated in any way, do not cheat in return. Trust the Lord to act. And stop going to that gas station. And so we come to verse 24. As we seek to walk through life in wisdom and righteousness, we are often perplexed. Our best plans made with the best counsel do not work out. People mistreat us. We can't figure out why. And so we need verse 24 to steady us in the perplexities of life. Look at it again. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Now we've been told again and again to pay attention, make a plan, avoid harm. We do all the right things. And life still doesn't make any sense. We make decisions and we walk them out, but underneath it all and apart from our knowing it, the Lord directs how our path goes. We are responsible for our choices, but God is responsible for where they take us. This trust becomes a foundation of our lives in a perplexing world. Now I look around the room and I know there's a lot of perplexities. And the older you are, the more your treasury of perplexities fills up. We must learn that though it doesn't make any sense to us, the Lord is directing our steps. Even our mistakes, even our sins, He will use to bring about His good purposes. And that, that gives you some steel in your soul when everything seems to be going wrong. And if this is true, if we cannot control the future, then we better be careful what promises we make to God. Verse 25, it is a snare, okay, it's a trap to say rashly, it is holy. And to reflect only after making vows. Now, to say it's holy is you take something that you own, that belongs to you, and you declare that it's for God. But maybe you can't deliver at the moment. It's a future promise. If you make a commitment to God today for a future you do not control, you may realize you cannot keep your promise. But you made it to God. And as the ancients said, your words are, they are resolute. They can't be changed. So you've got to give what you have pledged. So the wisdom is to give what you can today and don't presume on God or your own abilities for your future. And then we come to the final three verses that have to do with the wise ruler and how he rules his kingdom. Verse 26, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. The spirit 
of man is a lamp of the Lord, searching out all his innermost parts. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. A wise king winnows. Now, we're not familiar with this, so I got to explain. When grain is harvested, okay, you sometimes see stalks of grain piled in a field. Well, when it's harvested, it must be separated from the stalk and the husk of the plant. And so the ancients would use what was called a threshing sledge with sharp wheels, and it would be driven over the stalks of grain, repeatedly crushing them to pieces. Then the farmer would come with what's called a winnowing fork, and he would fork up what he had crushed, throw it in the air. The wind would blow. He'd pick a windy hilltop to do this. The wind would blow away all the chaff, all the stalks and the husks, and the seed would fall to the ground. This is what a good king does. He separates out the wicked from his kingdom, and he drives them away. He does this knowing that his decisions are known and examined by the Lord himself who searches his innermost parts. Verse 27, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. The spirit of man could also be translated the breath of a man. As you breathe out, as the king breathes out his words, the Lord is powerful and knowledgeable enough, he can follow your words back into your heart and determine why you did what you did. So make your decisions carefully. If the king's motive, as seen only by God, is love and faithfulness for God and for his people, his throne will be preserved by God. By steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So our text today offers us wisdom for doing business in a fallen world and wisdom for us and for our rulers when wrongs are done against us. Wisdom for rulers applies to anyone in authority, a father, a pastor, a business owner, a teacher, a lawmaker, a president, a judge. The Lord knows us in our innermost parts and expects us to bring justice to our realm of authority. So a lot of us here carry authority over other people and we are expected to keep to this standard. We've covered a lot of ground. We've gone through a lot of scriptures. They are all different. Is there something we could say that would encapsulate all that we've read here in Proverbs 20? Is there some simple statement that we could make that kind of captures everything that's going on here? I think there is. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends his 12 apostles on a mission to declare that his kingdom has come. He tells them that in some places they will be rejected and even persecuted. So to prepare them in how to know how to conduct, conduct themselves on this challenging journey, he says this, 
I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, this is not immediately comforting. Uh, sheep are defenseless in the midst of a wolf pack. So I'm sending you out, at not just the sheep where there's wolves in the area, I'm sending you out in the middle of the pack. Sheep need a shepherd to defend them. They cannot defend themselves against wolves. So in this vulnerable state, we're to be wise as serpents and at the same time innocent as doves. <laughs> well, let's take a look at wise as serpents. Jesus does not have in mind that evil worm, the devil, but simply a common snake. In the ancient Near East, serpents stood as a metaphor for prudence. Now that word prudence, do you remember that word? It's a Proverbs word. To, the, to be prudent is to see the situation as it is and develop a plan to deal with it. Okay, so the theme of paying attention as we're going through life, see the situation as it is and have a plan for dealing with it. Don't sleepwalk through your life. Pay attention. Have a plan. But prudence alone is not enough. As Don Carson points out, commenting on Matthew 10, prudence can easily degenerate into cheap cunning. Can easily de degenerate. It all becomes about self-protection, self-profit, constant escape strategies. So along with prudence, we need innocence. We are to be as innocent as doves. Now, doves are not sophisticated creatures. Um, they are not at all aggressive. They just kind of coo around, and then at some point when they're spooked, like pigeons you've seen, they all scatter. So we're to be prudent and yet innocent. We're to see the situation as it is and have a plan, but it cannot be aggressive and hostile and even necessarily self-protecting. In a different context, this is really interesting how Jesus uses this word innocent. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Paul tells the Roman Christians something very similar. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. To be wise, we don't need to know all the inner workings and motives of evil people. We just have to see the situation as it is and act. Paul tells the Philippians to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So there we are. We are sheep in the midst of the wolf pack. We have to depend on a shepherd that we cannot see, doesn't always act in ways that we would want or expect. And in that context, we must be both prudent 
and innocent. Both. Being innocent does not mean we do not pay attention and investigate. It doesn't mean we trust everybody. It doesn't mean we participate in someone else's lie. It doesn't mean we take counsel from just anybody. That's what Proverbs told us. Prudence does not mean we put other people's money at risk. It does not include seeking revenge when wronged. But prudence often does mean doing nothing when harmed, waiting for the Lord to act. Prudence means that you know that God knows, right down to your own thoughts, and that He cares deeply about justice. Prudence means standing up for what is right and avoiding fights God has not called you to. Innocence means forgiving and accepting wrongdoing when there seems to be no righteous way to rectify the wrong situation. To be prudent is not to be powerful, and to be innocent is not to be ignorant. We're to be wise as serpents, prudent as serpents, harmless as doves. The prudent innocent can walk in confidence that one day your king will right every wrong and put down the wicked. Now that sounds really complicated, doesn't it? I, I think I just once again took you out of complication into something simple like being prudent and innocent. And then we see, oh my goodness, that is so complicated. Well, we need a model. We need a model and we have a model. We have Jesus. On the night he was betrayed and brought before the Sanhedrin, who do you think was the smartest guy in the room? It was Jesus. He could have shown them their violations of their own law in arresting him and shamed them into releasing him. When Jesus stood before that court, who had the most power in the room? It was Jesus. He could have released, as he said to the people who arrest him, an army of angels to take him out of their wicked path. But Jesus did not do that. He restrained himself. He sized up the situation with his eyes and ears and realized that prudence and innocence meant that he did not defend himself because the bigger picture was that he should be offered up to God as a sacrifice for sins. Does that mean that Jesus always yielded himself to anything any wicked person wanted? Well, prior to his arrest, he debated the Pharisees and the lawyers in the temple, often humiliating them in their supposed wisdom. And when earlier they sought to stone him, he fled. He had prudence. He evaluated the situation, he evaluated his calling, and he acted accordingly. But not using coercive power, but in innocence and righteousness. Jesus is our picture of how to walk in a fallen world where often wickedness abounds. His spirit dwells within us, leading us to follow Jesus and walk in the wisdom found in the book of Proverbs. So as you meditate on this passage, as you go to work tomorrow, 
as you meditate on the wrongs done to you that have cost you something that comes to your mind all the time. We need to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you knew how to walk through a life that I'm never going to have to walk through, but you did it with great skill, with great wisdom, with prudence, and with innocence. How can I walk in this situation? And the Lord will show you. If you keep awake and you pay attention. So as we walk day to day in this fallen world, we must pay attention to what's going on around us and make a plan to act wisely. And when we are wronged, we need to trust the Lord to make it right, to wait for Him to act. We must follow our Lord Jesus. We must be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Will you pray with me? Lord, we started this and it just looked like 15 unrelated sayings and now we see that there is a great call on us in this passage to walk through life in a way that requires a lot of skill. And in the midst of it, you tell us that even when we act with great skill, it doesn't always work out the way we plan. And so we ask you to make us and shape us like your son as we walk this path of this life, not knowing the future, not knowing what's to come, planning but not knowing if our plans will succeed or not, working hard and yet not being guaranteed the response that we want. Would you please teach us the wisdom of this passage? I pray for all of us who are involved in the exchange of money, whether for our work or for our household, that we would learn to walk wisely. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would be people who trust you enough that we do not have to take vengeance into our own hands, but we can wait for you to act. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you for your spirit who works these words into our hearts. Thank you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.